0: So, this morning, what were we talking about? We were talking about what makes the sacrament, um, and in particular, using the structure of the bare bones of the sacrament to focus what it is you as a priest need to be aiming to be sure is there as the bare minimum. The words of absolution that you as the priest, say, they are not what makes the sacrament, they are the form. The matter, or quasi-matter, because it's not physical stuff, to use a language of Trent, is contrition, confession and satisfaction. Contrition, you need to be sure there is imperfect but real contrition. They don't have the most perfect motive to be sorry but they have a sense that it is wrong. Contrition includes hatred of the sin, maybe for an imperfect reason but some kind of hatred of the sin, an intention of resolution to not do it again even if that resolution is weak. So a man comes to confessing adultery every week. And every week he does mean it. I know I shouldn't be doing this. And you know I'm, I'm, I'm just weak. Um, well he is sincere. He intends it. His will is weak. But he intends it. He intends not to sin again. It's a valid use. He, the sacraments for him. To help lift him. Give him an additional help. As well as at that moment cleansing his soul.
1: Um, to dissociate the intention from what he probably knows is
0: the case well and there's a difference so I to use the example of pride you referred to also earlier I know I will commit the sin of pride in this next hour Um, but I went to confession yesterday yesterday in fact yes and confessed pride Um, and I did intend not to do it again but I also know I will Um, that that's not the same thing. I know my will is weak, but I intend not to do it. I intend to battle against it.
2: One, one of the comments I've heard from a, a, a priest, a, I mean, not an academy, uh saying to me was, there's this guy who comes week after week after week with the same sins, and he's on a, a treadmill. You know, I don't know what I can do to move him forward.
0: Well, that's a good point. And I, th- actually, there's a lot relating to the point I'm going to make now. Confession is not the only tool available. So you m- need to bear in mind, here in confession, what I am doing is not the only thing involved. I do my bit in making this help. There are other bits that may somehow move him. And not to think that I have to achieve everything in this confession. Well, no, I... I'm only one tool. So in the same way that you might give some advice, give some teaching, but the primary place for teaching is the pulpit. So I'm not going to be able to explain everything. If somebody's immersed in sin, well, confession is a help, a really important one, but it's not the only thing that might move him. And I think holding on to that is an important thing to keep a sense of balance, and how uptight we can get about what we're doing. And would it yeah.
2: be appropriate, in confession, to say that? Like, you know, you might want to consider if you can resolve it elsewhere or something
0: like that. Or uh, is it sir, not sir, uh, whether it's appropriate depends depends on the penitent. Um, so there are some people who you will realise very easily are looking for some comment from you. There are others who will be. The instant you say anything, you can kind of sense them shutting down. Um, you got to play that by ear. But yes, so I, I made the point, and the notes there somewhere, that even though you tell people, come to me outside the confessional and talk this through, um, so particularly about masturbation, this is something I have found with penitents one on one, um, going through all the standard remedies, you can help people a lot and surprisingly easily, but if they're not going to come, you can't force them to. And you also, there's a general principle to not saying confession something that will will deter somebody from coming again. So if I've given a bit of advice once, and they've clearly not taken it, and if I say the same thing again and again and again, he's just going to stop coming to confession. to try and avoid saying what will needlessly deter somebody from coming to confession again, because confession is only one of the tools on offer. So I try to do this bit of what's on offer right, um, and prayer. Um, to pray for those who come to confession to us. Actually, I've not given you in these notes, but uh, I will try and remember to email you. I guess maybe you'll see No Father Z's blog. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the prayer? Really he's had on there a while back a really good prayer for a priest to say before and after hearing confessions um, it included the line let me save others let me not lose myself uh, realising that my soul is at stake here if I'm just glossing over and being harsh or impatient or careless but also with that to pray after confession Pray for each person who has confessed to me that God will make up for the mess I've made in what I've done. Um, My sloppiness, my incoherence, my irritability. Um, Okay, off my point. Okay, one last point before moving on to satisfaction. Um, Rejecting people. I would, I've never told somebody that I'm denying them confession. I have told people I'm deferring absolution. So with that, linguistically I'm making it a little less harsh, but I'm also pointing to the reality. That it's not that I'm rejecting them, I am delaying this until they are ready. That there's something in what they've been saying The indicates they're not ready. Either they're not sorry or they're not willing to change. Or, actually they've come to me and they've said there's nothing they've ever done wrong. Uh, As I've said, well, they're not ready yet to go to confession. So I will try and direct them to some source that I will either have ready somewhere around the church porch um, or something on the internet um, and to say, when you've Got that ready um, I'll be delighted to have you come back to so d- defer rather than deny a solution reading materials. reading material if you yes and there are lots of little leaflets around so the CTS one on confessions one um. okay last condition satisfaction so um, I don't know. This wouldn't have been part of standard Protestant theology, obviously, very opposite. um, So we're on page 12 here of the notes, I'm only going to leap across different parts of this. But the example I put at the top of page 12 there. um, So a child breaks a jug of milk in a tantrum. The mother forgives the child, but the milk is still spilt there on the floor. So forgiveness is one thing. The remedying of the effects is another. Satisfaction is about the remedying of the effects. So there's a distinction here. The distinction is sometimes also phrased between uh, the eternal (coughs) punishment um, of hell, uh, but that can be forgiven, but there's still a temporal punishment that has to be worked out in time Relation to the effects. Those effects are between me and my relationship with God, within myself the damage I've done to myself for my sin, and with other people. So all of those things are satisfaction. And if I'm not wanting to make satisfaction, I'm not actually sorry. If the child breaks the jug of milk and says he's sorry, but doesn't actually want to undo the damage, That's a sign he's not actually sorry. So true sorrow has this willingness to make satisfaction. So the condition we are looking for here is this desire to make up for the damage of my sins. Um, And there's a two-part phase to this. In order for the sacrament to be what's called complete, um, I need to be willing to make satisfaction there's a further stage when I actually make satisfaction that not only has that eternal punishment lifted, but has actually the temporal punishment working out in time of the effects is resolved as well. Now a priest assigns a penance in confession. That penance does not undo all of the damage of your sin. It's a specific canonical expression assigned of your willingness, your intention to make satisfaction. So somebody comes to you and confesses, to come back to the example of adultery, because moral theologians always talk about sex, confesses adultery and I give him three Hail Marys. Hmm. Does three Hail Marys undo adultery? No. It's a sign of his needing to undo the damage. Um, And it has a particular added sacramental benefit by being assigned in the confession. But it's not a thing in itself. And often when we assign a penance, we need to make that distinction so that people realise... I can remember a teenager sniggering um, at a a penance I gave him because he confessed something quite significant. Um, And I suspect he was also sniggering because he was only there because his mother had forced him in. Um, but the point to make is well, you're not able to do the penance that you need to do. I'm assigning you a small thing um, mm-hmm. to not give you too big a burden. Um, so, um, St. Thomas Aquinas is quoted on a regular basis with this. He takes the analogy most of us don't use log fires anymore, but if you put a big log on a fire, you actually put it out. Mm-hmm. Now, the fire needs wood to burn. But if you put too much, it puts it out. It doesn't make it burn anymore. In the same way, to make the fire of contrition, of grace, burn in our souls, the penance that has to be given has to not be too much, or else it will discourage the penitent. it will crush the resolution to improve that was there. So this this twofold stage a willingness to make satisfaction that is the essential part of the sacrament the actual making of satisfaction that is an ongoing process and somewhere in between the canonical penance that's been assigned has to be done to gain the finishing of the sacrament but the manuals of moral theology say that there's an added benefit even though it's not canonically expressed, of uniting my future penances with my last confession. So, I realised that the penance I was given yesterday was only quite a small thing, um, and that actually there is a remaining residue of temporal punishment that I need to be working out. And so the penance I do today, I unite with that confession, and it requires an added value as a remedy for sin one other thing um, so, or well not one other thing so the church tells us assigning penances then church tells us that the penance to be assigned has to fit you could say fit the crime it has to be appropriate to what's being confessed so if we're always saying three Hail Marys say three Hail Marys say three Hail Marys there's a risk there that actually it's not appropriate at all really Um, I will almost always make somebody say a prayer for an intention that relates to their sin so someone commits adultery they are, I give them a small prayer, but to say for their spouse. Someone confesses, and admit, a big part of their confession is um, a sin against their mother. A small doable prayer, but for their mother. So that there is a element of it that is responding to what they have confessed. Um, is this a said
3: prayer you give, or just pray from the
0: heart? Um, I'm about to say but I think it's very important in the giving penances to make it clear and doable so that somebody knows they have finished it yeah. so I can remember once being told by a priest for your penance I want you to be really good this weekend um, now actually that was a part of contrition it had nothing to do with satisfaction if I wasn't willing to be good this weekend The whole thing is a waste of time. But even if it hadn't been, it would have been so nebulous, it would be easy for me to have got scrupulous about, have I fulfilled it or haven't I? So we can help people not get close to scrupulosity by making it nice and precise. So if I give someone a penance to meditate on Jesus on the cross, I will make clear time. I'll say, I want you for one minute in church um, to meditate on Christ on the cross. So that they know they've done it. Um, that'd be my particular advice, but I think there's a an obvious logic in what I'm saying there, yeah. So specific, doable. They know they've done it, and it relates somehow to what they've confessed. That said, the church also says also in the catechism, it has to be proportionate. Um, Take account of the penitent's personal situation. Now, the penitent who needs to do the biggest penance is not spiritually capable of it. The man who comes to you with a very list of minor sins has got enough spiritual power in his soul that he could do some mighty penances, but he doesn't need to. The man who comes to you in a very disgusting state of sin with very little grace in him, needs to do a lot of penance, but he doesn't have the strength to. So when we assign a penance, we need to bear in mind the weakness of the person we're giving the penance to, and not, back to St Thomas's image, not place too big a log on a fire or we put it out. The corollary of that, as is on um, the handouts I gave you, is that the priest has to expect to do penance, for his penance um, and to see that as a regular part of what I do. So to do penance, praying for fruitfulness for those people, um, penance to make a f- reparation to God's wounded heart for all that sin's done to him, that has to be a regular part of a priest's identity and spiritual life. I think you could do it both in a generic and a specific way. I suppose I do both. I probably do it more generically than specifically. I have had moments in my priesthood when there will be particular big sins I'm aware I need to be praying for. And a sense, particularly now as a parish priest, I think I would have that sense even more of my duty to my flock, that they're my flock, but that's not me as in mine as in power, but mine as in responsibility. And that they have a right to expect their parish priest to be making this kind of intercession for them.
4: I can it's, think of penances I've been given are those that you can do before you leave church. Because you know, it's quite immediate, it's linked to the, mm-hmm. to the confession. I have heard of priests, both giving and being given, mm-hmm. priests are quite open about this, penances, which are quite extended.
0: If you give someone an extended penance, I think on one level you've got to feel confident that they're going to be spiritually capable of doing it. So I can remember when I was, well I won't say where, but um, there was a, a confessor I went to who would regularly tell us as a penance to do a, a half hour meditation. Um, now I was already going to do a half hour evening meditation. That then meant I was going to do an hour. Um, and you know, I had other things to do with my time. Um, but he was, I suppose, making the assessment that I would actually do it. And, um, and I was capable of doing it so if you are going to assign that I think that's got to be one of your criteria that the penitent is capable of doing it but I think we should be wary of making canonical penances too big so I can assign a canonical penance and recommend other things what I'll often do
3: with the children especially
0: if I'll say the penance with them I'll In, say
3: it's like an act of love, um, and uh, so that I know they've done it, and they know they've done it. So they leave, having had the satisfaction already, without there being any sense that they can be distracted once they leave, because they're all going to go out and run around the playground with their friends. And if there's any, if it's, you know.
0: you would lose with that the sense of there needing to be something outside of the confession that needs doing which I think is part of the whole notion of what satisfaction is about that it's ongoing that it has a particular canonical form the expression that I have to fulfill but that actually satisfaction I need to be doing but there is,
3: so subjectively it's inadequate but objectively I mean it
0: still satisfies the it, yeah. validity of yeah, it yeah does. it does has public penance gone entirely Is, is there any i'm not a canon lawyer um it's an easy cop out of an answer i i think i think it, it has yes so there are canonical penalties but i don't think there are canonical penances i think so if you get you know excommunicated or laicized or have your priestly faculty suspended for different things you know there are canonical penalties And I think there are things that a bishop can then have the authority to impose, but I don't think are spelt out that they have to be this way in the canons. So that if I, as a priest of the diocese, do something, I disgrace the diocese, I have my faculties suspended, the bishop could assign, I think, I think I'm right in saying this, canonically assign me to do some public work as part of what I would then be required to do to be restored to, to the exercise of my faculties. Are you more of a than I am? Me? Yeah. Yes? No? Oh. <laughs> oh, well. I think you're right, because I came up with the CCRS course, but right? I did
1: it in Lancaster
0: University. Right.
4: Lancaster Diocese. So.
0: Satisfaction. Any, before we move on, thoughts, comments? one thought
2: that kind of popped into my mind as you speak about the about How do you ever come across instances where somebody says that you have to put up ambitions. As well a technical
0: frame. So it would be some somebody confesses to you.
2: There was an instance of which I had some years ago. Mm. Somebody said to me, Well, that's I biking press um, taking part in, a, in, a, in, in an abortion in an offering of the headache, and they used a nurse. I only realized the series was of it when I was told by the priest <coughs> that he right. couldn't absorb, he had to have permission to absorb until some years ago. Many years ago.
0: Right. It's quite
2: a faculty for you. I don't believe that. But that, yeah, that, that, that particular d- incident is, is covered it?
0: Uh, In this country, yes, I have automatically the faculties to lift the excommunication. Depending on the time and the context, and generally speaking, I think you should tell the person that you are lifting the excommunication so that they know. Mm. Because there's a significant likelihood at some stage in the future this person who is confessing abortion will find out that there was... Uh, an excommunication that came with this so that you make it clear I'm not only absolving you, but I'm absolving you of the penalty of excommunication. Um, I think I've had times when all that has happened in such a distressing packaging, I've not actually said that, Um, but I think in general it's something we should seek to say. And of course that won't necessarily just be to a woman, That could be to the man who took her to the clinic. That could be to the father-in-law who paid (coughs) for it. That all those accomplices bring with them also automatic excommunication.
4: Can I ask a question about satisfaction here? You you spoke about eternal punishment and temporal punishment. Mm -hmm. Where does purgatory fit into this? Sorry, yes, good point. So, purgatory. Purgatory
0: is remedying. Purgatory pays the debt of our temporal punishments. Um, if you don't do temporal punishment on earth, yes. you do it in purgatory. Um, and to use the image, not of punishment but of remedy. If I don't remedy the effects of sin within me while I live, I will remedy them in purgatory when I die. An indulgence does that um, while I'm living or after I'm dead somebody offers it on my behalf. So doing the canonical penance isn't the same thing as getting an indulgence Uh, and that's one of the ways of seeing the difference. An indulgence or a plenary indulgence removes all of that which is a further thing in addition to just having done the canonical penance which remedies part of it and as a sign of my willingness to mm. remove the rest, is that enough
4: of an yeah, yeah. answer? Yeah, I, I don't okay. I do. Okay. Okay. Are you going to
3: cover absolution, the forms of absolution? Well, there's the, the regular absolution, but then there's also I give you a full apostolic pardon by the authority when you're doing the last rites. What's the, form, what's the difference in terms of
0: one? Isn't one is an indulgence. So I give the absolute, in the last rites, in the emergency form, I give the absolution, I then give the apostolic pardon, which is an indulgence available at the moment of death. But that's an indulgence, that's different. Is that, that's different, hmm? is Plan- that understood? It's like? yeah. Um, that's a, but that's different to absolution. You have to have absolution in order to get an indulgence, but it's not a different form of absolution, it's an additional thing. Yeah, the full right. apostolic pardon, which is,
3: which is, uh, well, you don't actually have the absolve in there. There's the Be- uh, well, because
0: the abs- absolution prayer you said just well, beforehand.
3: Now
1: that's interesting because on the way in, <coughs> to church there is a, a notice about indulgences. Right. And I read it cursorily admittedly, after lunch, and it suggests, to, to, my, to my understanding, that. Uh, it operates outside of the Confession and actually acts as, as an absolution. I'm sure it's not saying that, but that's, that's the way it comes across as a
0: reader. An indulgence has what are always called the usual conditions attached to it. The usual conditions including sacramental confession and absolution uh, and communion, Eucharistic communion. Um, those are the usual conditions.
1: It doesn't. It doesn't say that when you read it. Well, it's, I... it's, it's there on public display.
0: Right. Well, it should do, um, <laughs> unless it's a partial indulgence.
1: This is a, a full,
0: indulgence. A, a plenary indulgence. It gives
1: a particular prayer, a particular prayer to say. If, this, mm, if right. this prayer is said so many times over so many days, then you gain as a result of that a full indulgence.
0: Um, if it's saying that it would always have to be presuming the usual conditions as they are called it may
1: say that, but I don't think it does
0: <laughs> ok well <laughs> mm. ok oh. hmm? that would be understood it was oh. understood it? Right. Well, you understand now yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's,
1: why, that's why father's consent to us in order to make sure that we do understand yes
0: and it might be an example if it wasn't clear of why when we put things like that out we need to. There would have been a time when you could have said the usual conditions and people would have had a clue what you meant. Well, um, it isn't, if it wasn't clear to
1: me, then I would hazard.
0: It, it was not clear seen, to others. I'm not trying to be
1: proud. I would imagine it is also not clear to lots of other people as well.
0: Right. Okay. Can I move along? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, a few different things to touch on. Page. 18 of the notes. The question of how often to go to confession. Now this is obviously linked with the question of what is confession about. Primarily it is about remedying mortal sins. But it also is of huge benefit for the confession of venial sins. So there's a minimal way of approaching the sacrament, and a much more frequent way of approaching the sacrament. Um, So I have noted, let me just go through what I've said there. I've articulated a principle. A, the quality of our examination of conscience and of our confession should affect how often we go to confession. So if I'm only ever bothering to examine mortal sin, Well, I shouldn't then be going very frequently, because it's not proportionate. B, how much we avail of the other means towards salvation and holiness. For example, somebody who makes a daily holy hour and attends daily Mass should correspondingly confess more than monthly. Conversely, somebody who does not engage in mental prayer or weekday Mass will gain little from weekly confession of venial sin. So the danger, if you take one of the means of salvation and use them a lot, and don't use the others, is you get uh, an imbalance in your spiritual life, which can then go with scrupulosity or obsessiveness. And that would hold for all kinds of things in the spiritual life. So it's great to have a huge devotion to Our Lady, but if I don't also grow in that in a similar manner to my growing in other devotions well my devotional life is all out of balance so the frequency of how often I go to confession should fit in in a similar way to how I am using the other things in the spiritual life so that said monthly confession is the standard advice given for somebody who goes to confession to go to mass only on a Sunday weekly confession is advised, I've listed there a few sources. Um, Tim Francis de Sales is probably the most authoritative saint on this, um, compiling all kinds of advice in the 18th century previous sources. The 1917 Code of Canon Law actually legally required this of all religious, as in nuns and monks. It's also these days something you will encounter in the what are called the new ecclesial movements. So if you go to Youth 2000, Faith Movement, Time Apart of, Opus Dei, other things, you will find weekly confession is just one Mm -hmm. of the things in the air. Um, Mm -hmm. You can even, as I've said, their daily confession uh, is supposedly the example in Pope John Paul II. The other end of the spectrum, yearly confession. So, how infrequently can I go before my lack of frequency in itself is a sin? not just in itself is not good, but is a sin. If I'm not even going once a year, that is breaking um, what's called there the second precept of the church, which is you shall confess your sins at least once a year, as quoted in the Catechism. I've noted there the Easter duty, the Easter duty is actually a duty to go to communion once a year in the Easter season. If you're going to be prepared for that once-a-year Easter communion, you need a a once-a-year annual confession at Easter also. One of the imbalances you will experience in parishes is there are people who have got this notion, I only need to go to confession once a year, but they're going to communion every week, if not more. So there's a lack of balance there, as the Church has encouraged more frequent communion. But it's also encouraged more frequent confession. So there's a legal minimum for both of once a year that we're encouraged to much more. And that all these things should grow with each other, <coughs> not one instead of another. Is that news to people? Or? My understanding is some of the Orthodox churches, it's only one. To one. It would have been, there was a, a more common pre practice um, where you would expect if someone was going to go to communion on Sunday that they would go to confession that Saturday so that was part of the Latin right okay. um, mm. and wouldn't exactly have been legally expressed but was the kind of common practice mm. there's been an increasing encouragement to more frequent communion but that has somehow happened at the same time when the consciousness of sin and going to confession has dropped. So we have an imbalance at present in our church practice. And when I said Orthodox, I meant Eastern. Yeah, I, I assume that's what right. Sorry.
4: Is there not also an imbalance? I mean, many parishes, for example, have mass on Saturday morning, but the priest available for confessions for an hour, two hours, sometimes with um, to the blessed sacrament often having Holy Communion before confession the opportunities seems to me a little bit odd why not have confessions first and then mass so that people can have confession before they receive Holy Communion otherwise they're in danger of receiving communion unrivaled yeah.
0: to use a in the phrase I take your point, and it's one that has occurred to me also.
4: during the week, often, Mass
0: um, plus Confessions. If they're not in mortal sin, then it's not an issue. They don't have to go to communion just because they're going mm. to Mass. Um, and I think that would be probably the answer I would give to someone who is asking me that question. That's well, if actually there is something significant, um, you're going to go to communion on Sunday? Uh, presumably you're going to Mass on Sunday um, actually sometimes it's good for us to attend Mass and not go to communion as part of our realising that we do need to prepare for this mm-hmm. I think that there's a practical reason I don't want to hear confessions before Mass and that it's I can't tell how long someone's confession is going to take mm-hmm. um, so you're two priests, aren't you? If you have two priests, then you're laughing, yeah.
2: Um. Would you? Uh, are you going to say anything? Would you be
0: able to say anything about guilt, um, particularly um, in a uh, contrasting a you know, rightful understanding
2: of of guilt as a Catholic might might use the word, mm. um, and particularly perhaps contrasting it with the situation which. We find ourselves nowadays in the secular world where, where guilt is regarded as
0: something unhealthy, um, something which we, which we shouldn't feel because um, it is just wallowing in the past. I wasn't going to say anything about guilt, which probably reflects something of the state of my own spiritual life, <laughs> <laughs> but also my own formation. I wasn't raised with a heavy notion of guilt. There are more typically an older generation of Irish Catholics that will have this imbued from the Jansenist heresy that came across from France into the Irish seminaries under the persecution from the evil British um, of this very guilt-based religion that as far as I see has nothing to do with authentic Catholicism. You but, that's a, but that's you a difference. Well, no, I would use the word, but I suppose I'm just correcting myself on one level that's... I'm so far removed from that in my own upbringing, that I can almost forget to talk about guilt in talking about sin. Guilt should be something we experience before repentance, and that doesn't remain with us afterwards.
3: always thought of guilt as being more of the material, and then shame is the, a sense of shame is what you feel. Guilt is what you are.
0: I think that would be a, a useful distinction, though.
3: So it's not a feeling thing. You're out of, so as mature, materi- the, 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 those who are in a state of material <laughs> sin are guilty, and are in a state, state of,
0: of and are in a state of guilt. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a culpa. Culp- is culpa the? Um, I don't
3: know the Latin because you're now we're looking at the word guilt, whatever
0: it and the equivalent yeah. reference. And I'm not sure where shame would fit in that, in the Latin, if I'm honest. Could you, um, could, you, could, you just, could you just give me again the thing you said about guilt being something... Well, guilt, guilt is something that we should experience, and I would say, in my use of the word, should feel before repentance. But once we repent and are forgiven, guilt is a thing of the past. Right. And and in people, and you do meet them, and sincere Catholics, you will meet them who continue yes. to feel guilty, yeah. even though they've been forgiven. Yeah. That's a deficiency in their formation, and something we need to be seeking to liberate them from. Yeah. Because somehow, ex- the experience of forgiveness mm. hasn't taken root. We've I think oh. one of the it's, it's a, I can just. One of the ways, I think, to that is the question of satisfaction. So a person who is obsessed with guilt has a sense that there's something that remains. Well, if we distinguish between satisfaction and sorrow, we can indicate what there is that needs to still be undone, but also indicate that they are set free from the eternal punishment, um, that that's gone. They've confessed it, they've been forgiven, the sacrament has taken care of that.
1: A knowing of the heart and of the mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know that I love my wife. I don't always feel that I love her. I know that I love her. Right, right. And, and it, it, that's very helpful for me to know, to, to know that. And
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um,
4: I think with
1: guilt, you can apply certain
2: kind of criteria. Yeah, the mechanism doesn't always work perfectly because <clears> of the <throat> fall. When sometimes yeah. one people forgive I think I should not forgive it. Out. Sometimes one does not forgive i think So I mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. But the but the guilt in itself. Is a healthy thing. I do something bad. If I don't feel guilty, that's a, a pathological condition. But
1: Luther used to say, "I am baptized in his black moments." Yeah. I am baptized. So he knew that he. More to do with knowing. Though that mm-hmm. that, that, that
3: mm-hmm. that.
0: Mm-hmm. So he might be an example of someone who's got <laughs> guilt <all Yeah>. over. <laughs> so he was. He was a
3: binary. He was either overly scrupulous, or as you say, he you know relied strictly.
1: Surprised, mm-hmm. but it's, it's you know there, there's, a whole,
0: there's
1: a whole set of issues that you go over
0: that and stuff. business, business
1: about knowing Jesus, you know, <laughs> and the evangelicals who right. knowing Jesus. And yet I and yet, can't. And yet
0: no the And yet you can't know Jesus until you know you need a saviour, until you know you have that experience of realizing I have guilt, but that sense of feeling guilty should be a transitory thing that doesn't remain with me when I know I'm, I repent and I am forgiven. If it does remain with me, something's wrong in how I'm processing it.
3: But that is something the evangelical, in my past, evangelicals is the whole thing is you know that you're a sinner, you need to know that you're a sinner, and you need to know that Jesus died for your sins. And, that's, and that is... Um, the, the, the very first step, say of Catholic uh, moral offering But you do, they get that right. They really do highlight the fact that, that sin is what keeps you from God, and that Jesus atoned for your sin. So they really get that right. They don't do much for you once you once you said that sinner's prayer, and that you acknowledge that fact. But. I mean, it's, it's, what they do is actually very good in that sense. You, you have to start with the
0: fact that you're a sinner. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to cut us off on that thing so that we can cover a couple other things. <clears throat> I want to spend just a couple minutes at least on the, sac- uh, on the sacramental seal, so, page five of the notes I've given you. <clears throat> I'm going to leave you to read through those yourself but just to draw your attention to the importance there are very few things that you can get excommunicated for a priest breaking the sacramental seal is one of them I don't just have my priestly faculties removed I get excommunicated it's a very serious thing Um, Our people need to have an instinctive as they do utter confidence that what they say in confession stays there. That means the way we talk to them we need to have these two identities. There's what I know about somebody in confession that is quite different to what I know about them outside of confession. I know that Mrs Bloggs is in a state of adultery, that she's doing this all the time but I give her communion at Mass because in the external forum, I don't know there's anything wrong. I might tell her in confession, if you're going to stay in this state of adultery and everything else, you should not be presenting yourself for communion. But at mass, I don't know that in my public persona, I give her communion. Which is different if she tells me all this in the public forum, and other people know about it in the public forum. Yeah, so th- I need to have in myself this compartmentalizing, but the, the laity need to have confidence that this is part of how I function so they need to have this sense that what they say in the confession stays in the confessional so I don't see somebody outside of confession and say things like ah oh yes I saw you yesterday didn't I um, now that hasn't broken the seal but it attaches a certain odium to it. Um, I am always very strict with penitence in saying um, or if somebody starts half saying something to me after confession about what they've said in confession I'll say look if you're referring to something you've confessed and you want to talk about it now you need to tell me what you've said because I can't play a guessing game here with what's in the seal and what isn't and that does them the benefit of knowing that actually what they said there is sacred and staying there but it also gives me the capacity to talk or not talk Um, because otherwise it's terrible for us to know well can i even smile as they say this how do i respond well by saying if you're implying something you've may or may not have confessed you need to indicate that to me outside of confession if you want us to talk Um. okay the CDF has also warned about the danger of referring to confession in our sermons so in a sermon I say well as somebody confessed last week um, uh, or it could be even more general than that um, as somebody once confessed to me there's a risk there of an odium being attached to the seal that somebody doesn't feel quite as confident in the statements of the seal so to take this seriously ourselves and to live it out in a way that others can be confident about it I'm not going to say unless anyone's got a particular question on that
1: if someone wants to speak to you about the confession right
0: so I would always say to people my way of keeping those two roles clear and so that it's clear to them is to say um, and often I will say to somebody in confession um, what you've described here is um, you know an important thing and whatever I haven't in confession got the time to help you with any substantial advice now Um, I think you'd benefit by talking to somebody outside of confession Um, feel free to call me Uh, And talked and arranged to speak to me outside of confession or to somebody else, Um, but I don't have time to deal with that adequately right now. If they do come to me, I then say, Look, if you're going to talk about this in confidence but not in the sacramental seal, you need to tell me again in this new forum what you want us to talk about. I think you can debate to some extent how strictly that is necessary, if they've come to the same priest to talk about the same thing. But I think it actually helps establish confidence.
1: Give give a little words about <laughs> If uh, you had given someone advice as a part of their confession, mm-hmm. and you assume that they had accepted that, and mm-hmm. discussed it as within as the confession, and then afterwards they pigeonholed you and said, what do you mean by that or, or or basically are you should you then say well, <coughs> you need to bring us up again outside of the confession confession?
0: Yeah. I think I think the way I would deal with it is I would say, remind me what I said. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah.
0: Um because it may well have been they would misheard what I said. Um but that yeah. would Because otherwise we end up playing, I can, I know I, the, the exact type of scenario you're describing, but that's how I would get around it, is to say, well, remind me what I said, and I can't remember what I said or what I meant, I think. Um, they've never been <coughs> the
3: satisfaction element, because the satisfaction element should always be clear, right? You should, they shouldn't be leaving I mean, any questions with the
0: satisfaction required. right. Can I refer to, just to one point before we page before we finish uh, page two of the notes? So page two of the notes, I've plucked out various con- principles from this document about making for confessors that came out in 1997. That points out that a priest has a duty to ask questions. Not to ask questions always, but if the confession seems too <coughs> mechanical, overly short, questions to arouse something. Um, while it also says that it needs to be a prudent reserve, a respect in which we show in how we ask questions. Because uh, we do have this position of power, whether we think of it or not. Someone bears their soul, and the if you just prod at it. Um, that's not a respectful way to go about things. I've re- mentioned the presumption of goodwill. So unless somebody indicates to the contrary, we presume they are in goodwill, we presume they are sorry, we presume they are contrite. Um, there has to be some sign to the contrary for me to start doubting that. Linked with that, frequent lapsing into sin isn't a sign of not being Sorry. It's a sign of a weak will. Um, so yes, somebody's done it again and again and again. Yes, their will is weak, but that doesn't mean they're not genuinely sorry today when they come to confession. The last point, the law of gradualness. So, JP, um, JP2 distinguishes it this way. That distinguishing between the law of gradualness and the so-called graduality of the law graduality the law saying that well the law for you is different to the law for you because you're not able to keep up to it well, one no, of the law of gradualness says something else the law of gradualness simply observes that people change gradually and somebody removes themselves repents from sin gradually and how i approach somebody has to have an awareness of So I don't throw everything at them all at once. I seek with a penitent, particularly in a parish where I've got regular people coming, I don't address everything all at once with equal force. I have an awareness of the law of graduality, that they will are sincerely repentant, but how they're going to deal with this is going to be gradual. I approach them on a gradual basis Which includes, therefore, prioritising what might or might not be the easiest thing for them to work on, the most important thing to work on, and so forth. All right, I'm going to finish there. Um, If I can can just say what I think I said at the beginning, just it has been a great honour for me to be. uh, assisting the ordinary. yes, I'm aware of you know, the great sacrifices and gambles you have made to come into to full communion with the church. Um, and I've got huge respect for you for doing so. So thank you thank for you. letting me help this. It's the first time I've heard a citizen gamble. <laughs> <all right. laughs> thank you.